University of California Television presents this podcast of Lunch Poems featuring Lawrence Ferlinghetti. This program from UC Berkeley's Noontime Poetry Reading Series was recorded in December 2005. For more information about this and other UCTV programs, visit us online at www.uctv.tv. Enjoy the presentation. See, it was like this. When we waltz into this place, a couple of far-out cats is doing an Aztec two-step, and I says, Dad, let's cut. But then this dame comes up behind me, see, and says, you and me could really exist. Wow, I says. Only the next day, she has bad teeth and really hates poetry. Don't let that horse eat that violin, cried Chagall's mother. (laughs) But he kept right on painting and became famous and kept on painting the horse with violin in mouth. And when he finally finished it, he jumped up upon the horse and rode away, waving the violin. And then, with a low bow, gave it to the first naked nude He ran across, and there were no strings attached. (laughs) The penny candy store beyond the L is where I first fell in love with unreality. Jelly beans glowed in the semi-gloom of that September afternoon. A cat upon the counter moved among the licorice sticks and Tootsie Rolls, and oh boy, come. Outside, the leaves were falling as they died. A wind had blown away the sun. A girl ran in. Her hair was rainy. Her breasts were breathless in the little room. Outside, the leaves were falling, and they cried, Too soon, too soon. Constantly risking absurdity and death, whenever he performs above the heads of his audience, The poet, like an acrobat, climbs on rhyme to a high wire of his own making and balancing on eye beams above a sea of faces, paces his way to the other side of day, performing entre-shots and sleight-of-foot tricks and other high theatrics and all without mistaking anything for what it may not be for he's the super-realist who must perforce perceive taught truth before the taking of each stance or step in his supposed advance toward that still higher perch where beauty stands and waits with gravity to start her death-defying leap. And he, a little Charlie Chaplin man, who may or may not catch her fair eternal form spread-eagled in the empty air of existence.
here's a few uh, big surf poems in Bixby Canyon. A vast, conf a vast confusion. Long, long I lay in the sands. Sound of trains in the surf in subways of the sea and an even greater undersound of a vast confusion in the universe, a rumbling and a roaring as if some enormous creature turning under sea and earth, a billion sotto voices murmuring, a vast muttering, a swelling stuttering in ocean speakers, world's voice box heard with ear to sand, a shocked echoing, a shocking shouting of all life's voices lost in night, and the tape of it somehow running backwards now through the Moog synthesizer of time and sea, chaos unscrambled back to the first harmonies and the first light. Uh, this poem I owe to Kenneth Rexroth poem of his called Lyle's Hypothesis. Some of you may see the connection. But uh, the two Kenneths that were here, the two Kenneths that were here in San Francisco when I arrived in the 50s were really the kings of the poetry scene. They were the mater, the pater familia of, of uh, the San Francisco poets at that time, Kenneth Rexroth and Kenneth Patchen. Patchen was living in North Beach at that time. Uh, he's, he, both Kenneths are unjust, unjustly ignored today. Especially Rexroth had an enormous influence on all the San Francisco poets at that time, especially uh, Gary Snyder, Rexroth's mountain poems, uh, uh, direct line to Gary's. Uh, instead of Lyle's hypothesis, this is Olber's, Olber's paradox, Bixby Canyon. And I heard the I heard the learned astronomer, whose name was Heinrich Olber's, speaking to us across the centuries about how he observed with naked eye, how in the sky there were some few stars close up, and the further away he looked the more of them there were, with infinite numbers of clusters of stars in myriad Milky Ways and myriad nebulae, so that from this we may deduce that in the infinite distances there must be a place, there must be a place where all is light, and that the light from that high place where all is light simply hasn't got here yet, which is why we still have night. But when at last that light arrives, when at last it does get here, the part of day we now call night will have a white sky with little black dots in it, little black holes where once were stars. And then in that symbolic, so poetic place, which will be ours, we'll be our own true shadows and our own illumination on a sunset earth.
learned professors are still publishing books trying to explain why we have night or why do we have darkness at night. There still isn't a good explanation. Maybe there's some learned astronomers here who can enlighten me, us. Another Big Sur poem. Night's black mirror is broken. The star crab has scuttled away with the inkwell from into India. Dawn sows its mustard seed. In the steep ravines and gulches of Big Sur, small animals stir under the tough underbrush. As sun creeps down the canyon walls into the narrow meadows where the wild quail run and cluck. Daytime moon, after much reflection, says, sun is God. And the stream, standing still, rushes forward. Deep chess. Life itself like championship chess. Dark players jousting on a checkered field where you have only so much time to complete your moves and your clock running all the time. And if you take too much time for one move, you have much less for the rest of your life. And your opponent, dark or fair, begging, bugging you with his deep eyes or obscenely wiggling his crazy eyebrows or blowing smoke in your face or crossing and recrossing his legs or her legs or otherwise screwing around and acting like some insolent, invulnerable, unbeatable God who can read your mind and heart. And one hasty move may ruin you for you must play deep chess like the one deep game Spassky won from Fisher. And if your unstudied opening was not too brilliant, you must play to win, not draw. And suddenly come up with a new Nabokov variation. And then lay him out at last with some super endgame no one has ever even dreamed of. And there's still time your move. <laughs> Queen's Cemetery, setting sun. Airport bus from JFK, cruising through Queens, passing huge endless cemeteries by Long Island's old expressway, once a dirt path for wheelless Indians. Myriad small tombstones tilted up gesturing statues on parapets, stone arms or wings upraised, lost among illegible inscriptions, and the setting yellow sun painting all of them on one side only with an ochre brush, rows and rows and rows of small stone slabs tilted toward the sun forever, while on the far horizon, Manhattan's great stone slabs, skyscraper tombs and parapets casting their own long black shadows over these long-haired graves, the final resting places, the final restless places 
of old country potato farmers, dustbin pawnbrokers, dead dagos and Dublin bouncers, tinsmiths and blacksmiths and roofers, house painters and house carpenters, cabinet makers and cigar makers, garment workers and streetcar motormen, railroad switchmen and signal salesmen, swabbers and sweepers and swampers, steam fitters and key punch operators, ward healers and labor organizers, railroad dicks and small time mafiosi, shopkeepers and saloon keepers and doormen. Icemen and middlemen and conmen, housekeepers and housewives and dowagers, French housemaids and Swedish cooks, Brooklyn barmaids and Bronxville butlers, opera singers and gandy dancers, pitchers and catchers in the days of ragtime baseball, pool room hustlers and fight promoters, Catholic sisters of charity, parish priests and Irish cops, Viennese doctors of delirium, now all abandoned in eternity, parcels in a dead letter office, inscrutable addresses on them beyond further deliverance, in an America wheeling past them and disappearing oblivious into East River's echoing tunnels down the great American drain. I was in uh, Spoleto in the 70s during Ezra Pound's silent period uh, this is a report I sent back to the old Saturday Review. Pound at Spoleto. I walked into a loge in the Teatro Meliso, the lovely Renaissance Sal where the poetry readings and the chamber concerts were held every day of the Spoleto Festival and suddenly saw Ezra Pound for the first time still as a Mandarin statue in a box in a balcony at the back of the theater, one tear up from the stalls. It was a shock. Seeing only a striking old man, a striking old man in curious pose, thin and long-haired, Aquiline at 80, head tilted strangely to one side, lost in permanent abstraction. After three young poets on stage, he was scheduled to read from his box, and there he sat with an old friend who held his papers waiting. He regarded the knuckles of his hands, moving them a very little, expressionless. Only once when everyone else in the full theater applauded someone on stage, did he rouse himself to clap without looking up as if stimulated by a sound in a void. After almost an hour, his turn came, or after a life. Everyone in the hall rose, turned and looked back and up at Pound in his booth, applauding. The applause was prolonged and Pound tried to rise from his, air, from his armchair a microphone was partly in the way. 
he grasped the arms of the chair with his bony hands and tried to rise. He could not, and he tried again, and could not, and tried again, and could not. His old friend did not try to help him. Finally, she put a poem in his hand, and after at least a minute, his voice came out. First the jaw moved, and then the voice came out inaudible. A young Italian pulled the mic up very close to his face and held it there, and the voice came over. Frail but stubborn, higher than I had expected, a thin, soft monotone. The hall had gone silent at a stroke. The voice knocked me down. So soft, so thin, so frail, so stubborn still. I put my head on my arms, on the velvet sill of the box. I was surprised to see a single tear drop on my knee. The thin, indomitable voice went on. I went blind from the box, through the back door of it, into the empty corridor of the theater, where they still sat turned to him, went down and out into the sunlight, weeping. Up above the howl, up above the town, by the ancient aqueduct, the chestnut trees were still in bloom. Mute birds flew in the valley below. The sun shone on the chestnut trees, and the leaves turned in the sun, and turned, and turned, and turned, and would continue turning. His voice went on and on through the leaves. This is a very short passage from the first. I don't want to use the word canto. The first part of Americas, my most recent book. To summarize the past by theft and illusion with a parasong, a, par a palimpsest, a manuscript writ over, a graph of consciousness at best, a consciousness of felt life, a rushing together of the raisins of wrath of living and dying, the laughter and forgetting, the maze and amaze of life, sound of the eternal dialogue echoing through the centuries of all the voices that ever sang or wrote, bearers of our consciousness, and the flux of history interrupted by catastrophes, flowers blooming out of season, sound of weeping beyond reason, a pianist playing in the ruins of Prague, a London fog, a, cow, a cow, a clod at a country crossing, dark dawn and a rooster's cry, kikiriki, a light that ever was on land and sea, and tea at Rumpelmeyer's in the Rue Rivoli, the labyrinth on the floor of Chartres Cathedral, and a Warsaw concerto heard distantly on a Detroit mall full of gumball goombas on roller skates, cry of a black singer in a beat-up Harlem bar, a bat hitting a ball in the first game of a new season, you laughter in a eucalyptus forest. 
in a smiling summer dream and fool's gold gleaming in a California stream. All the images of the splendid life of the world down the rivers of windfall light, a trillion, trillion images kaleidoscopic in a psychedelic tropic, later boiled down to a seminar topic, a song resung by a bird flown over to another zone, another climate, primate mutated into many colors wrought from the dark in his mother long ago from the dark of ancient Europa, Euro-man and Euro-woman in the hold of a listing freighter with Americus in the womb, born by the Hudson and Grant's tomb. He was an American. He was an American boy. He read the American Boy magazine and became a Boy Scout in the suburbs. He thought he was Tom Sawyer, catching crayfish in the Bronx River and imagining the Mississippi. He had a baseball mitt and an American flyer bike. He delivered the woman's home companion at five in the afternoon or the Herald Trib at five in the morning. It was long since he was a herdsman. This is the last poem I'm going to do because time is practically up. Inasmuch as President Bush saw fit to use the, the disaster of 9-11 as an excuse to start the Third World War, that is, the war with the Third World, I wrote this poem. History of the Airplane And the Wright brothers said they thought they had invented something that could make peace on Earth if the wrong brothers didn't get hold of it. When their wonderful flying machine took off at Kitty Hawk into the kingdom of birds, but the parliament of birds was freaked out by this man-made bird and fled to heaven. Then the famous spirit of St. Louis took off eastward and flew across the big pond with Lindy at the controls in his leather helmet and goggles hoping to sight the doves of peace, but he did not, even though he circled Versailles. And then, and then, 
The famous Yankee Clipper took off in the opposite direction and flew across the terrific Pacific. But the Pacific doves were frighted by this strange amphibious bird and hid in the Orient sky. And then the famous Flying Fortress took off, bristling with guns and testosterone to make the world safe for peace and capitalism. But the birds of peace were nowhere to be found before or after Hiroshima. So then clever men built bigger and faster flying machines. And these great man-made birds with jet plumage flew higher than any real birds and seemed about to fly into the sun and melt their wings and like Icarus crash to earth. brothers were long forgotten in the high-flying bombers that now now began to visit their blessings on various third worlds all the while claiming they were searching for doves of peace flying and flying until they flew right into the 21st century. And then one fine day, a third world struck back and stormed the great plains and flew them straight into the beating heart of skyscraper America, where there were no aviaries, no aviaries, and no parliament of doves. And in a blinding flash, America became a part of the scorched earth of the world. ashes blew across the land and for one long moment in eternity there is chaos and despair and buried loves and voices cries and whispers cries and whispers fill the air everywhere
You've been listening to a podcast from University of California Television. For more information about this and other UCTV programs, visit us online at www.uctv.tv.